Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. It should be a good morning. We should hear Besoros Tovos. Amir Tashem, it should be a day that we hear good news for Kla Yisrael in Israel and around the world. I want to thank our generous Parsha series sponsors, Becky and Avi Katz and family, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should continue to be Leili Nishmas, David ben Menachem This morning, Shir is also sponsored by Dr. Golda Zadowski in honor of Rabbi Yehuda Leib and Doris Kurtzer, her dear uncle and aunt. Amazing, wonderful people. They should have gesund. They should be well and have tremendous nachas from their families. Immediately following the year, as always, everyone's invited to remain. We'll complete all of Sefer Tehillim in the merit of our precious soldiers. The hostages should be brought home, and we should win this war decisively. We should have peace in Israel and around the world. Eila Mishpatim. Thank you for bearing with us. We took a two-week break. We were in Israel, but it's great to be back. And remember, anytime we take a break, there are old shiurim you can listen to online, and there are incredible other Magide shiur you should listen to, amazing people that you can learn from. Page 416 in the Art Scroll Stone, Chumash. We're coming off the high of last week. What was the high of last week? Parshas Yisro. Kabbalah Satoro. We're climbing down, if not literally, figuratively, from the mountain. We hit that high. Revelation, the most seminal moment in all of history. Hashem spoke directly to us. He revealed Himself in an unprecedented and unparalleled fashion. It was an incredible high. And now, where do we go next? We're coming off of that Ni'ila. We're coming off of that Fabrengen, that Tish, that Kumzitz. We're coming off of that incredible moment of Ashkocha. We're coming off of that amazing spiritual high. We're coming back from our year in Israel. And what's next? Civil law, tort law, criminal law, laws of slaves, laws of this. If you buy a, a Jewish slave, six years he works for you, and so on and so forth. Says Rashi. Whenever you see the word Ela, these, it is coming to negate or to contradict what came earlier. But we have a Vav on the word Ela. The Vav, Mosif al Rishonim, it's a Vav Achibor, it's connecting, it is adding on to what came before. Ma Rishonim Misinai, Af Elu Misinai. Just as the earlier ones came from Sinai, meaning last week's Parsha Yisro, what contained within it what? The Aseras Adibros, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Af Elu Misinai. I just wanted to flex to use the word Decalogue to look smart. <laughs> but it's Aseras Adibros. I can't fool you anyway, you know by now. So, Aserah Dibros, just like the Aserah Dibros were divinely communicated, come directly from Hashem, Afelu Misinai, all these laws too. When your ox scores another ox, when your car bumps into someone else's car, when someone owes you money, when someone asks for a loan, when someone's indigent and poor and needs, and needs a handout. It's all from Sinai. Don't think that the Aserah Dibros are distinguished and different. That was a Chabura Friday morning at our Erev Shabbos Kolal. Are the Aserah Dibros, are the Ten Commandments different than the other 603? Or are they the same? In fact, we used to incorporate it into our davening. Gemara Baruchos tells us that not only did we say Shema every day, among the sections we read from that come from the Torah, we would read the Shema every day, and we'd also read the Yaseres Hadibros. We would read the Ten Commandments. However, it was nullified, the Gemara says, Rashi explains, people concluded, I guess I just have to keep the Big Ten. I just I have, to not, have to believe in God, not worship idols, don't steal, don't murder, and I'm good to go. Shatnez, Kolisha, I don't know, uh, what are people's hang-ups? Second day of Yontif, whatever the, what are the big hang-ups that people have? So that I don't have to, kidneys, that I don't have to keep, that I don't have to keep. So, Ma Rishonah Misinai, Afeilu Misinai, Kidneos is not Misinai, it's the Rabbanon. Second day of Yontif is the Rabbanon, save the email, I know, I got it. But my point is that what appeared in Yisro is from Sinai Har Sinai and what it con continues today. So why? How is this a way to come off that high? Yisro, revelation, inspiration. We're on a high. And then we get into the minutiae and the details and all of a sudden we become law students going through the law books. Why are Lamanis Machapashas Din and the Pashas Mizbeach? Lomalacha Shatasim Sanhedrin is on Mikdash. Where did the Sanhedrin sit? The High Court, Supreme Court of the Jewish people. Where did they sit? They sat in the Lishka Sagazas. They sat in the Beis Mikdash itself. So we had separate branches, so to say, but they overlapped. And why? Why did the Sanhedrin sit in the holiest place, the Beis HaMikdash? Because from a Jewish perspective, law is not secular. It's not mundane. Law and justice 
and the pursuit of justice and the protection of justice are religious experiences. Dayanim have to sit by Atifah Sarosh. A Dayan has to wear a hat, wear Atifah, wear a talus over their head. Why do we wear something on our head? To signify the seriousness, to feel the weight of Hashem's presence. So Hashem Lirav, Hashem actually sits with the Dayanim and helps them adjudicate and come to the conclusion of law. For us, justice and the adjudication of justice and the development of legislation of justice, it's all a religious experience. So the Sanhedrin didn't sit somewhere in Yerushalayim, elsewhere. They sat in the Beis HaMikdash, the Lishka Sagazis. Sanhedrin was Eitzel HaMizbeach, Eitzel HaMikdash, because it's all a religious experience. We're learning this now in Siddur snippets. I love when it overlaps. We're up to the 11th bracha, Hashiva Shoftenu Kevarishonah. We're longing for the return and the restoration of justice. Every day when we daven, we say, Hashem, evidence of the gullus we're living in, the exile we're suffering from, is how unjust this world is. The Hague, the international courts, the double standard against Israel, the targeting of the Jew, the injustice in the world against the Jew is itself an expression, a manifestation of this harsh and dark gullus. So we've begun in the Amidah with Kabbalah Shofar Gadol, the 10th bracha, Kibbutz Galios, gather us together. And what happens after we're together? What do we long for? Return justice. Bring back our Shoftim, our Yoatzim. Bring back some sense of righteousness, of right and wrong, of good and evil, a sense of justice, a sense of, a sense of truth. Bring it back. Let people not be afraid. Let people not have to wordsmith or be politically correct. Let them not just, what was it, the Emmys, the Oscars, what was the award the other night? The Grammys, I'm not trying to sound religious, I really don't know. The Grammys, it's not enough to say music. Some people singing music were killed. Call them, say their name, we're Jews, they were Israelis, they were victims, they were targeted. Could you imagine, I don't want to, I know it's the Pasha class, I just have to get this off my chest. Could you imagine you would describe 9-11? As a financial club, there were a group of people who love finance. When a plane hit them and killed them, and finance money should bring something that brings us together. Let us study and open markets and experience finance because Nebuch, there are victims who died, who love, and were working with money. And you wouldn't say Americans were targeted on 9-11? I'm grateful that the Grammys mentioned the Nova Festival. But before we have such a low opinion of ourselves and demand so little of ourselves, say Jews, say Israelis, say who were the perpetrator and who was the victim. Fight for righteousness and justice. Stand up to evil. Ela ve'ela ha'meshpatim. That also comes from Sinai. That also comes from Sinai. So let's jump in. The first Dvar Torah. Lavos Eish. Rav Yisrael Meir Druk. He was here last night. He spoke here at the shul. We'll send out the, the video of his beautiful, beautiful insights. So in his new sefer, Lavos Eish, he says the following. Hadinim, I told him. I said almost every day I quote the Rav. So keep publishing Svarim. So I keep having things to say. He's written 55 Svarim. He's... On his way. The first laws that we encounter after the spiritual high of our Sinai. These are the interpersonal laws of, of justice, criminal, tort, civil law. This is the first thing we teach. You're coming back from the incredible Shabbaton. You're coming off the amazing Ne'ilah. You're coming off of the incredible Fabrengen. And you say, now sit down, I want to go through some laws. If in the parking lot your car hits another car, here's what you, oh, that's what you're teaching? Teach me about davening, Yom Kippur, Shabbos. Talk to me about my neshama. Talk to me about being Yedevet Hashem, Amunah, Bitachon. Give me the mitzvah of Dveikos. Why are we starting out with Chosh and Mishpat? The reason is, says Rav Jokum, Matam Nevchar Davka Mitzvah, Eli Yosem Bisharkola Mitzvah, we had so many, 613, to choose from. And this is where we begin. This is where we pick it up after our Sinai. The answer is we're trying to build a society. And how do you build a just and proper society? By having rules and order and law. Now the truth is you don't have to be Jewish. And you don't have to have the Torah Kadosha. You don't have to have access to our Torah's Chaim to know that you need laws. All civilized societies and countries have laws. Have laws. So what makes us special? So one would have, could have erroneously concluded, you know, don't steal, pay back somebody, lend money, take care of a poor person. Secular atheists, agnostics could come up with these rules. So maybe they're not from Sinai. 
And therefore, specifically, when we came back from our Sinai, these are the first laws we're taught to know that even though they're the, what we call mitzvah sichlios, even though they are rational laws, one could have arrived at them on their own. That's not why we keep them. We keep them because the Devar Hashem, Hashem who created the world, gave us the blueprint for creation. He gave us the instruction manual for life. And He said, Here's what ownership is. Here's how money works. Here's how a society should run and should function. Even though it makes sense, even though we like it, even though it protects a civil society, that's not why we keep it. Someone wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, why don't you steal? Why don't you rob other people? The answer is not, well, society would fall apart. If I would rob, people would steal from me. There'd be no ownership. We couldn't function. The answer is because Hashem said not to. Because Hashem taught about ownership and property and rights. And He said not to. He said a moral good person doesn't. It's because of Hashem. And that's why, We don't do it because we understand it. Because what happens? If we begin to observe the things that we understand, that we appreciate, that make sense and we do it because they make sense, what will happen? You'll say, but, but shotness doesn't make much sense. That doesn't do it for me. Wool and linen and getting my things tested and checked. That's not logical. That doesn't make sense. I'm going to skip that one. I'll keep the society one. I'll keep the rational ones. So therefore, a person needs to go in. And that's what we dive in every day in Tehillim. We say every morning, Magid dvarav li'akov, chukavu mishpatav li'israel, it's not just that we have laws that those who don't have them can't begin to comprehend, understand, and they're not ready to, to observe. It's that even the mishpatim, even the things that we do that make sense that all societies do, but we do it for a different reason. We keep mishpatim, it might as well be a chok. It happens to make sense? Nice, enjoy. That's not why we keep it. We keep it as if it were a chok. And that's the ve'ila mishpatim, and that's why the parsha begins with this. The Amaros Toros, we turn to the Rach Meshrifka, who says the following, quotes from the Degel Machan Ephraim, the grandson of the Helega Bashem. Ve'ila mishpatim asher tasim lefnehem. The Zohar says something interesting. Says the Zohar, Ilan inun sudurin gugula. What does that mean? This has something to do with a Gilgul. What's Gilgul? What's Gilgul? Reincarnation. Do we believe in reincarnation? It's a big machlokas harishonim. Goes back. All the, all the gedole harishonim, the great medieval commentators, line up and debate. They don't necessarily fall out where you would anticipate they would. But there's a fascinating debate. Do we believe in reincarnation or do we have one shot? We come one time. Are we reincarnated? Our soul comes back over and over again till we figure it out, till we get it right, till we repair what we need to in order to be able to return to Hashem and attach ourselves back to Him. Where do you get one shot? And the consequence, the result of how we used our one chance here leaves us for eternity with whatever choices that we made. It's a big machlokas. It's a complicated topic complicated topic because if you do believe in reincarnation and you can be reincarnated as another gender, another person, another object, another animal, in Tchia Samesim, in the resurrection, who are you coming back as? Who are you married to? Who are you related with? There's a lot of questions that come out of it. However, there's a big stream that say there's such a thing as reincarnation. And in fact, we have a tradition, the Zohar and others that talk about great figures and personalities in the Torah who were reincarnations of the soul of earlier people. Moshe was Noach. We have all kinds of reincarnations. Pinchas, we have all kinds of reincarnations. So the Zohar here comments about reincarnation. And you wonder, what, we're in a court here. What, what, we're in court. There's judges. There's a dispute. It's a financial issue. What are we talking about reincarnation? And listen to what the Rach Meshivka says. Whenever you have a Din Torah, whenever you have a conflict or dispute, each party, of course, thinks that they are correct. If they thought that they were wrong, then they wouldn't be in a Din Torah. They would just award the other person what they want, what they're asking for. Each party, of course, thinks they're right. 
So what happens when the Beis Din disagrees with you? You know you were right. I've been involved in several Dine Torah. The litigants rarely walk out and say, I thought I was right, but you know what? Now that you've ruled against me, I realize I was wrong. That rarely happens. Usually they want to back out, which is why they needed to sign the binding arbitration before they began, so they can't back out. A binding arbitration, so they can't back out because they're so confident they're right and they're confident that Dayana will see them as right, that if they see them as wrong, or even a pshara, even if there's a compromise, even if they have to compromise whatsoever, often people are very upset. It doesn't make sense. So says that's what the Zohar was getting at. A person's attitude should be that, you know what? Maybe my understanding, my interpretation, my experience, I'm right. Maybe Beisden ruled against me anyway. You know why? Because in a previous Gilgal, I was trying to figure out, incarnation? Reincarnation? Carnation? Incarnation? Reincarnation? I don't know which one. But in a previous Gilgal, you know what I'm trying to say. In a previous Gilgal, I was obligated in this money. So now when they ruled against me, even though I know I'm right, I'm not going to fight it. I won't be bitter about it. I won't not follow it. Because it must be that in the previous Gilgal, I really was obligated in this money. It's a fascinating insight. You didn't anticipate, you didn't see that coming on Eila Mishbatim. Because I think that the message is powerful, not just when things don't go our way, to start calculating, maybe in a previous Gilgal, I was obligated, that's why this happened, that's why it worked out this way. But it means to say that in every conflict, in every dispute, however things turn out, I put my faith in my amuna in Hashem. I fight for my rights. I represent myself. I advocate. I fight for my rights. But when all is said and done, whether it went my way or against me, I, I surrender. And I say, Hashem, you're in charge, you're in control. However it turned out is the way you meant it to be. And even if I think I'm injured, I'm harmed, I've been wronged, I don't owe that money. But for whatever reason, you've determined. Maybe I owe it for some other reason. Maybe it's a kapara. Maybe it's a tikkun. Maybe it's a gilgul. With the Zohar, according to Rachman Shivka, what the Zohar is telling us is a, a method to how to maintain our tranquility and our serenity and our happiness. How many people walk around miserable and forbidden and bitter? The world has mistreated them and is unjust and is ruled against them and they don't, they're not understood, they're misunderstood. Instead of realizing Hashem is righteous, all that He does is righteous. And even when something went wrong, I can fight, I can advocate, I can advance my interests. But when it's over, it's up to Hashem. It's the way He decides it. More of a shemesh. The Rachman Shifa quotes another interpretation on this opening pasuk. Ve'ela mishpatim. This vav. Why do we have this vav here? We said Rashi quotes the vav is connecting it to last week's parsha. Just as last week's parsha, we were on a spiritual high. This is how we connected to Hashem. You should know that when you learn Choshen Mishpat, that's also tapping into the Dvar Hashem. That's Hashem's will in this world. Kabbalah Satoru, last week's parsha was a sound and light show. Thunder and lightning was unreal. It was unbelievable. I hope you all had that experience last Shabbos. That, that's our tradition, that the, the Kriya is ma'orer the zman. Whatever we're reading in the parsha, we're not reading about something thousands of years ago. Whatever we're reading is what's happening that week. So last week, was, we were back at the mountain. Last week was Kabbalah Satoru. We were back seeing the sounds. We were back with the lightning. We were back. It was unbelievable. It was, I saw you all there. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And that led, when you experience revelation, when you see the guiding hand of Hashem, you can't be in denial. You feel a sense of confidence. You feel a sense of, of, of happiness. The Torah was given with a sense of awe, the awesomeness. And we learn from there that every time we sit down, and every time we learn Torah, we have to bring the same attitude. You know, you don't learn, I have a tradition from my Rebbeim, you don't sit in a recliner while you learn Torah. You don't lean back. I have Rebbeim who are makbed, they wouldn't cross their legs while they're, you don't, you don't cross your legs. Crossing your legs is what you do when you're relaxing, when you're schmoozing, when you're letting go. You, you don't sit, you, you dress a certain way. You dress a certain way. I think Reb Chaim would put, make sure he's wearing his jacket for Shnai Targum. You dress a certain way. There's an attitude, a seriousness that we bring to the learning of Torah because every time we learn Torah, you know where we're transporting ourselves? We're back at our Sinai. Hashem is still talking to us. 
He is proclaiming his great voice. It never ended. We continue to pick up the signal of Hashem speaking to us. As has been said by many, when we daven, we're talking to Hashem. And when we learn Torah, we're listening to Hashem talk to us. Anyone who thinks we're not in a conversation with Hashem, there is a daily conversation. While we daven, we're telling Him what we think, what we have to say. And when we learn His Torah, we're listening to what He has to say. He's speaking to us. So if you have an audience with Hashem, if He's speaking to you, what are you going to sit in a t-shirt and shorts? You're going to cross your legs? You're going to be doing 17 other things at the same time? So when do we feel you open a Messiah Sasharim, you open a Shari Tshuva, you open a Musar Sefer, ooh, I'm back at our Sinai, Revelation, you open a Chovas Halavavos, I'm learning about Amuna and Bitachon and Dvekas, I'm getting close to Hashem, I feel I'm in His presence, I have to dress, look, speak, I have to have a certain posture, I'm with Hashem. But what happens? You open the Gemara, and the Gemara says, the Gemara says, where's Hashem's name even? It's not even mentioned on the page. Two people come in, they're both holding on to the garment, and each one says, it belongs to me. They're both fighting over those Lululemon pants. They're $400, so they're fighting over the Lululemon pants. <laughs> fighting over the Lululemon bag, it's $40. And, and each one says, it's my, these are my pants, this is my bag, this is my sweater. This is my sweater. Each one says, Kula Shali, it all belongs to me. And that's, you, you open the Gemara and you start learning that. So who does it belong to? Who has the right? Who has to bring the evidence? Who has to bring the proof? Someone lent money, borrowed money, the car had another car, the shore, the ox had another shore. So does Hashem's name even appear? There's no Hashem on the page. So says the Rach Meshif Garebbe. He's quoting from the Rebbe Milublin. A person has to, before they sit and learn, I'm about to learn tort, criminal, civil law, I'm about to learn dry, boring, minutiae, detail. I'm about to learn topics that feel entirely removed from spirituality, from Hashem. It's my job to connect them. I have to bring Hashem onto every page of Gemara. So you should read a Shnayimuch and Betalus. Two people are holding on to the Lululemon pants. Ze'omer Kulishli, Ze'omer Kulishli. This one says it all belongs to me. This one says it all belongs to me. We should read into the Mishnah. Vakadush Baruch Omer Yachloku. It doesn't say Hashem's name. But we have to read it in. What does Hashem say? What's Hashem's vision? Vision? How does Hashem define ownership? How does Hashem define define evidence and proof? We have to add Hashem to the page, add Hashem to the conversation, and that's what it means. Ve'ela vav Moshev al inyan arishon marishona misinai af elu misinai and mal lama nismach aparshas din laparshas mizbeach lama shetasim sanhedrin eitzel mizbeach. It's an article in a in a journal of Jewish education. I think that's where it originally is, that tells a story that how could it be that kids sit in the classroom in the shir with the Rebbe and they're learning Gemara and they learn Shleimachs and Batalas so they're learning all about the laws and then they go play on the playground. Someone steals the ball from the other kid. Someone's dishonest about the, were they out of bounds? Did they foul? Did they travel? What's happening? How could there be this disconnect? How could it be a disconnect between what we're learning? It can't remain academic. It can't just be scholarship. It can't just be interesting and fascinating and remain in the classroom. What the Vav, Mosef Alarishona, means, according to the Rach Meshrivka, according to the Morvashemesh and the Rebbe of Lublin, what the Vav Mosef means, the experience of Harsinai has to be brought down into the Elam Metzius. Has to be brought down to someone lost an object. When do you announce it? When do you not announce it? Is it a simon? Is it theirs? Do you have to return it? Can you keep it? Is finders keepers, losers, weepers? What do we believe? What does Hashem say? What does Hashem want you to do? What does Hashem want you to do? You have to walk out of every experience, every chavrusa. And tragically, sadly, I would suggest that this is missing in too many of our educational experiences where we have conversations of ruchnia, spirituality, emunah, bitachon, Hashem, siddur. And then there's the learning, gemara, halacha, which is dry and, and distanced and removed from Hashem. We have to bring Hashem into that conversation. Every shir every Rebbe gives, every chavrusa that everyone has, should end and say, how does Hashem want me to see this thing differently? What does Hashem want me to do? If Cook had a tradition, learned from Rav Moshe Weinberger, and he does, he has notebooks filled, that every time you learn, you turn what you learn into a tefillah. Hashem, 
The ox, shor shenagach is apara. Sometimes I'm an ox. I bump into people. I run over people. I damage them. Let me take responsibility and ownership for how I damage Hashem. Let me see myself. Elam What are the things that I found? What, are, what have I held on to? And what did I let go? To turn every learning experience into a tefillah. And that's how you can connect the vav, mosifan al-arishonim, ve'ila mishpatim, connect Yisro mishpatim, by a vav, by bringing Hashem into the conversation. Into the conversation. If we want to ensure that our children don't graduate 12 years of Jewish education and not know if there's Hashem, what He wants from them, is He in a relationship with them, is He coming with them wherever they're going next in their journey of life, then He's got to be in the curriculum. He has to be in the conversation. He has to be jumping off the page. He has to be on the playground. And He has to be when there's something missing from the locker. And He has to be when someone finds a lost object. That it's part of vav vav mishpatim. That is all connecting back to our Sinai. It's all part of that religious experience. Perchavalaf pasuk gimel. So we begin with the eved ivri. The eved ivri is the Jewish slave who works, Jewish slave who stole, damaged, can't pay back, sells himself into slavery in order to earn the money to be able to pay back. However many years to earn the money he needs in order to compensate is how long he has to work. And what happens? Torah tells us. If he works for six years, the seventh year he goes free. If he arrives by himself, he lives by himself. If he's married, he comes in as a unit. His wife goes out with him. Says the Tefer Shmuel, which is not yet out, but Baruch Hashem, they've started sending out the newsletter, I guess, before it's being printed. So I'm able to share for Shmuel Berenbaum. Beautiful. Says the Tefer Shmuel, What do you mean his wife goes out with him? Did she ever come in? Who was hired? Evid Ivri, just so you understand. Evid Kanani is still complicated. Do we? Don't we believe in slavery? How do we understand slavery? Don't moral people reject slavery? There are answers, explanations, and approach. Not for now. Evidivri is complicated. Evidivri is relatively straightforward. The evidivri is a person who stole, can't afford, and is hired in a rehabilitative setting where he lives with the master and learns from him and grows from it till he can compensate, pay back, comes out of rehab, and goes back to life and is treated incredibly well. In fact, is treated even greater than the adon, than the master. The master has one pillow, he gives it to his slave instead of sleeping with it himself. It's a rehabilitation experience an environment. But only the person who stole, even if he's married, is the one who works in order to earn, in order to pay off and compensate what he stole. So why does the Torah use the language, v'yatsa ishto imo? His wife goes out with him. She never came in. She was never sold into slavery. She was never hired. She never was subjugated. She never had to work. V'yishlomar. It's another example, by the way. We've read the Parsha a million times. We read the word v'yatsa, she goes out. Did he ever stop to ask, when did she come in, that she has to go out? What's going on? You know what the answer is? While her husband is in that rehab working for that master, how is she eating? Who's paying her rent? Where's her health insurance coming from? That same master. As an extension of him, and he's being provided for by that master, it means she too is being supported by the same employer. Even if she's not obligated, and even if she's not working, even if she wasn't sold into that slavery. So she too is going out from something. And what is she going out from? Feeling indebted to that master. Because for that period of life, where her husband was in this rehab, she was provided for and therefore indebted to this master. And when a person can leave that sense of being indebted, viyatsa, they're going out from something. They're going out from something. Lamashal says the fair Shmo For example, what would happen? What happens? The master wakes her up at 3 a.m. and says to his slave's wife, I need you to drive me to the airport. My ride canceled. I got to make this flight. Be here in 10 minutes. I need you to drive me to the airport. Does she have an ability to say, hang up the phone? No. She's indebted. She's taking care of the family while her husband's in rehab. She's not technically obligated. She's not enslaved, but she would have to go. 
A regular person would get that call. If they're a Baal Chesed, maybe they do it, but they feel no debt, no obligation. But a person who is reliant on another is indebted to them. And you see from here, it says of Shmuel Berenbaum, that's why righteous Rashi Yeshiva Rabbanim were always very careful from whom they took a contribution. Because when someone is providing, supporting, contributing, taking care, you are by definition and automatically indebted. And you need a Yitzia. If you want to not be indebted, you need the Torah to get you out of there. And they were therefore careful not to take a contribution, a gift. People generally want to give the yeshiva they went to, but a person has to be careful to whom we are indebted because that debt will remain even if we aren't technically obligated. And that's what you learn from this word, the wife goes out from that sense of feeling indebted. Turn the page. 4.18, Pasuk Vav. What happens? If, you know what? I like this rehab. I like this environment. I like this setting. So, you know, I like this master. I'm learning a lot. I'm being taught a lot. I'm growing a lot. I got the pillow. I got the good pillow. I got the mattress cover. It's unbelievable. I'm not going anywhere. So what happens? His master brings him to the court and brings him to the door of the doorpost and puts a hole in his ear and he shall serve him forever. Serves him forever. Says of Rashi quotes Chazal. Why the ear? Pierce his nose. Pierce his eyebrow. <coughs> pierce his lip. Pierce his belly button. Human beings have found countless places to get piercings. Why the ear? Why the ear? Amar Biochan ben Zakai. Ozen Shashama al Harsinai lo signo, because that ear that stood at Harsinai and heard, don't rob, don't steal. And it stole. So now gets pierced. Imochar Atzmo. Ozen Shashama al Harsinai kilibane Israel vadim. And how did it, how does he have the money to compensate? He sells himself into slavery. Sell yourself into slavery? Weren't you listening at Harsinai? Hashem said, you're only my slaves. Don't sell yourself to anyone else. Because Why only hear this? Several questions everybody asks on this Rashi, on this Chazal. You've heard it before. We've discussed it before. We'll come at it from a different angle. First of all, why now? When did the person steal and sell themselves into slavery? At the very beginning. So why at the end of six years when he says, I want to stay, why now do you pierce his ear? Should have pierced his ear when he first stole and had to sell himself into slavery. For both reasons. He didn't listen and he stole. And he sold himself into slavery instead of being exclusively a slave to Hashem. So why do you wait six years? Why is it only when he wants to stay? That's one famous question. The other famous question is, and why not when you speak Lashon Hara, let's go pierce your tongue. Let's go pierce your ear. If you're Mechal Shabbos, let's pierce your ear. If you lend with ribbis, let's pierce your ear. We're picking on shotness today. If you wear wool and linen, let's pierce your ear. Why is it only this Avera? You were supposed to go free. You chose to stay. You stole when you shouldn't have stole. So we pierce your ear. There are many Averas in the Torah. So why don't we say every Avera you're over, every mistake you make, every sin you do, you should get pierced. So why not immediately? Our two questions. Says of Shmuel Berenbaum, V'yishlomar, Tabir b'divir Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai hu, T'mitzad ma'ashaganav belvad eno nirza. The fact that he stole his not grounds, not reason to pierce the ear. T'yitachin shu shama barsinu l'signov, Aval nichshal ba'akroish is gaber alav yitzro. He heard. And you know what happened when he heard? God said, don't steal. You know what he said to himself? Of course not. I would never steal. I would never steal. I'm a moral, honest person. It's pasnish. I would never ever steal. But what happened? But what happened? What happened? Someone left their Lululemon pants. Picking on Lululemon today also. Someone left over a pencil. You needed a pencil and you didn't really have permission, but use the pen. People bend the truth all the time and steal in ways. Right? 
The lawyer rounded up the hour billing their client. Not entirely accurate. Had lunch with a friend. They said, how's business? He said, good. It became a business expense. <laughs> That's also stealing. That's also stealing. The flower person, the person who did the flowers at the wedding said, don't forget to bring cash. He said, why? He said, because it'll be less surprised because they don't have to pay tax. And you said, perfect, a briefcase, a brown paper bag of cash. That's also stealing, that's also Los Signov. But the person who indulges that impulse, who gives in in that moment, why they give in? Because they were overwhelmed by that momentary lapse of judgment and sanity and honesty and integrity and truth. And they indulge that urge for that moment because they could save Epis, consider that lunch a business expense. They saved whatever they saved. And the same is true with every Avera. It's true we were at our Sinai, and we heard it loud and clear. And when we heard it, we were committed fully to observe it. But then what happens? But it looks really good, it tastes really good, but the juicy Lashon Hara, it's such an incredible social commodity, I want to share it. We're overcome and overwhelmed by that impulse, by that instinct, by the Yitzhara that we have in that moment. But now this slave, it's six years later, and now we say to him, remember you heard at Harsinai, don't steal, and you promised yourself you would never steal. You're not one of those people. It can never happen. And then it happened. You filled out the taxes. You weren't completely honest. And you know what? We understood because you're human. Hashem created you, created all of us with an animal impulse, an animal instinct, created all of us with this battle, this tension of the Yitzhara. It was okay. And you've been in this rehab. And now you've learned. And now you remember. And now you've Grown, how you can regulate yourself, control yourself, be more disciplined and sovereign over your... We're going to have a good dinner tonight. Be sovereign over yourself. You've learned. You've learned. So tell me, you want to go? Nah, I want to stay. You want to stay? When you say, no, I love this master better than the other master. Who's the other master? You only have one master. How can you say you love this master? You love money, you love power, you love fame, you love friends, you love influence. Well, there's only one master, and that's Hashem. And it's okay to have momentary lapses of judgment with that. But when we institutionalize it, when we can leave and we choose to stay, when we adopt that master, that, that's, that's not forgivable. That's when you get the ear pierced. That which you went and stole, when you did that, it wasn't a momentary lapse of judgment. You didn't indulge in impulse. Ella aznav lo shamu. Nish dehert. You didn't have a daher. You didn't hear. It didn't penetrate. You didn't really believe. It didn't transform. It's not part of your core identity of what you believe. Ha'isa lo shalot tignov. Lefichach yirtza. V'chein ha'mochar atzmo la'avdas yitachin shamachar atzmo rachmach maschem das mamon k'shurotu l'hisha'er gam ho'chachash lo shama aznav kili b'nei Yisrael avadim. Why do we wait the six years? Because to err is human. Everybody's going to make mistakes. It's built into the system. Hashem created us. He gets it. He understands it. And He created systems. Tshuva. Among the things that were created, Bein was twilight before the creation of the world. Gemara Chazal tell us, listed is tshuva. Hashem says, I got it. You're going to make mistakes. Here's the way out. No problem. It's okay. Created a whole system of forgiveness. But when you don't take advantage of the system to forgive, to repair, to improve, and you institutionalize the mistake. When you make the mistake part of your identity, that's now unforgivable. Now, you've transformed your identity. You're not an Evid to me, you're an Evid, you love your Adon. You love this environment, you don't really believe Los Signov. You've really, you've really stayed with it. You've really stayed with it. And that's the problem. In order to be able to fight the Yitzhara, we have to know we have to know we're Bnei Malachim, we're princes and we're princesses, we're royalty, we're the children of Hashem, and we have the resilience and the resolve and the tenacity and the self-control. We have the ability to be our best selves. We have that ability, we have to believe it. And the moment we stop believing it, you know, there's a difference between the person who says, I don't believe in Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara is wrong, I'm against Lashon Hara, I'm learning about Lashon Hara, I'm working on Lashon Hara. I bet you spoke Lashon Hara. Yeah, I'm human, I'm working on it. I made a mistake, I'm trying to improve. Versus the person who wholesale rejects Lashanara. There's no such thing as Lashanara. When I was a kid, there was a person in shul who said to me, he said, Ephraim, I don't repeat Lashanara. 
So listen carefully the first time. <laughs> if, you just, if you just believe it, for me, Lashonara doesn't apply. I just reject Lashonara. I just reject Sneas or Kolisha or Malachas of Shabbos or, or honesty in business or whatever area. I just reject the entire entity. Not I believe in it, not I'm working on it, not I'm trying to grow in it, but I'm human, but I reject it. That's the mistake of the Eved Ivri. So the Eved Ivri doesn't need the ear pierced, doesn't need that mark, that symbol, doesn't need to experience that piercing when they first make the mistake, because we all make mistakes. It's when the mistake becomes our lifestyle, when the mistake becomes our identity, when the mistake becomes institutionalized into who we are, that's when it becomes, that's when it becomes a problem. Perechavalov Pasuk Yudtes. Chavalov Yudtes. Turn the page again. We are flying. Page 420. We have murder and manslaughter. Now Pasha's Mishpatim, incredible list of laws. Murder and manslaughter, fight that, uh, that comes up between people. What happens is a fight between two people. Somebody's chovel. Somebody strikes another person. And... You have to pay the five, Dafyomi recently learned, you have to pay the five things. What are the five things? Nezek Tsar, Ripoy, Sheves, and Boshes. You have to pay five things that you were the person that you damaged. So you punched somebody, you hit somebody, whether it was on purpose or by accident, Adamod Olam. then you owe them five things. And one of the five things you owe is, Verapo Yirape. What is Verapo Yirape? To heal. You have to pay their medical bills. You have to pay, they were off work. You have to pay their workers' comp. You have to pay their medical bills. You have to pay for the shame and embarrassment they experienced. You have to pay for the pain that they endured. You have to pay for the damage in their value and worth. You have to pay for five things. learn from here. From here we learn that a doctor is entitled to heal. Why would I have thought a doctor can't heal? Why would I have thought a doctor can't heal? We're not going to get into this at length. We've discussed it previously in the past. The Rishonim disagree. Some say Rashi, the Ramban. One opinion is, <coughs> maybe you think the doctor can heal. Why? What does the doctor do, need to do in order to be able to heal? I have a daughter who graduated nursing school. I have another daughter who is in high school who wants to be a surgeon. And I have a friend in the community who's a surgeon. This past Sunday, she's in a high school program. She was able to scrub in and observe the surgery. I don't know how many people want to be able to do that. I don't know how many teenagers would be so excited to text their parents, I touched a gallbladder. <laughs> Mazel tov. Shkoyach. Not inside the person she wasn't allowed to. Once it was removed, wherever it was, she could check that off her bucket list. Not on my bucket list. Not on my bucket list. So she stood in and observed the surgery. And what did she watch? What's the first thing the surgeon does once the person hopefully is asleep? You take a knife and you cut them open. Are you entitled to cut somebody open? Can you walk up to someone at the parish here? Shalom Aleichem, how are you? That's called stabbing. That's called chavala. So the doctor is violating chavala. The doctor is stabbing the patient in order to heal them. Who says you're allowed to stab someone in order to heal them? Who says you could crack and break open their ribs in order to be able to access their heart to do the surgery? Who says? Who says? That's why the Torah had to give a license to a doctor to violate chavala. It's not chavala if it's lerapos, if it's the purpose of healing. Ramban others say, no, you know what the problem is? I might have thought... You know what else the doctor is violating? Not just a physical prohibition of chavala, you can't injure or harm somebody else. We once gave a whole share about boxing. There's a very illustrious history of Jews and boxing. Prominent Jewish, Jewish boxers. Is that mutter? Are Jews allowed to box? So if you're a good boxer, it's a problem, because you're chovel ba'cherim. If you're a bad boxer, it's also a problem, because the Ramam holds chovel ba'atzmos chayev. That if you allow someone to punch you in the face, it's also a problem. So we gave Oshir unboxing. Happened to be Pop Sugarman was here that Shabbos. He gave the rebuttal in, in real time. But it's a fascinating topic. There, believe it or not, there are tshuvas. Back in the early 20th century when Jews were boxers, there were a halachic response written about chavala and boxing. Another area comes up is cosmetic surgery. Who says you're allowed to go under the knife because you don't like your nose, your cheekbones, your jawline, you don't like your, I don't even know what else people have done. If I do, I'm not going to say it now here. <laughs> Who says you're allowed to go under the knife? Chovabatzmo. First of all, you're putting yourself in a risky, dangerous situation going under anesthesia. Every 
procedure, including elective, can go wrong. But it's also chovel. You're going to make yourself bleed. You're going to give the doctor the right. Who says you're allowed? We've given a share on that too. It's a big question. And it is allowed, based on a tesis, that mental health has the halacha, mental pain, the pain of mental anguish, is as real as physical pain. And if a person, Rabbi Moshe has a tshuva, to a young lady who felt that she was not successful in shiduchim because of a certain uh, part of her appearance that she wanted to improve, Rabbi Moshe Paskins, that it's not chovah ba'atzmo, if the mental anguish, which is as legitimate as physical pain, just like to relieve physical pain, you could be chovah ba'atzmo, so to, to relieve mental pain. Now how you define what's mental pain? Somebody else in your family's mental pain, so you're going to go under the... How do you define pain? When is chavala permissible? When is it not? All beyond the scope of our parshashir. However, rapo yirapei, the doctor is given license. The rabban is another reason. You know why? Maybe the doctor will say, maybe the super from people in the community will attack the doctor in shul and say, how dare you heal that person? Why? What did they do wrong? Normally we elevate, we honor the doctor, we admire them for healing. What does the doctor do wrong when they heal? Hashem decided the person should be sick. Who are you to go against what Hashem wants? If Hashem decided the best thing for that person is to experience that illness, who are you to combat and compete with Hashem and reverse what Hashem decided? So the Torah has to say, No, Hashem wants the doctor to heal. Why does Hashem make him sick if he wants to heal? For another time. But Hashem wants the doctor to heal. So the doctor is not a violation of Chavala. If in the context of healing, the doctor is stabbing, that's not called stabbing. That's called surgery. That's called healing. It's called healing. And it's not against Hashem. It's complicated. Chazal tell us, Tov The best of doctors are going to Gehenim. We also shared a shir on that. You can find all this online. Six or seven interpretations. Why is the best doctor going to Gehenim? Why? It's also for another time. But I want to share with you the Rebbe of Lublin. A lot of doctors here. The Rebbe of Lublin. Listen to this pshat. I never saw this before, never heard this before. This is beautiful. A doctor with no bedside manner. A doctor who says... You have no hope. You're unlikely to recover. Nothing anyone can do for you. Your chances are slim. That he was not given permission. That he doesn't have license for. Now to be clear, the doctor should not mislead. We're not suggesting that the Torah says doctors have to lie, mislead, and hold out hope when there is little. A doctor could be honest. According to the natural way of things, we've exhausted all of the therapies. A doctor can be honest and transparent and should be, ethically, morally, according to the Torah as well. But whether the doctor is positive or negative, the doctor has to bring hope and emuna and bitachon into what they do. So, a doctor is given a license. But on the doctor's license, he's only given license, lerapos to interact with the patient in a way that will bring healing, not bring sadness, not bring sadness. We, um, there's a great doctor, scholar, who's a mishpacha of my shver, Dr. Jerome Groupman. He's written many New York Times bestselling books. He's a Harvard professor. It used to be illustrious to say that. Now I realize I can't say that in front of the Aron Kodesh. He's a professor somewhere where no one should ever send their children or send any money. He's a professor, he's a doctor in their hospital. And, uh, and he's written many New York Times best-selling books about how doctors think. And he's a wonderful gem of a, of a person as well. And he tells a story in one of his books about one of his patients who he went and he describes how he was honest to her, how they'd exhausted all the therapies, they've tried everything and there was nothing more to try. She, he said, I have no more medicine that I can give. And she corrected him and she said, you have one more medicine, you're giving it to me now, which is your love and your support and your companionship, which is the type of doctor he is. And, uh, and, and she described that that too is medicine, that that too is healing. And that's exactly this Rachmash Shifka, this Rebbe Melublin. Mikan she'initein roshus l'rofei, the doctor is giving a license, only l'rapos. The bedside manner has to be such that even if you've run out of therapies and medicine, 
but your presence, your love, your support, your honesty, your encouragement, your companionship is Larapos. You're only trying to heal because we know the opposite's true. The research shows that when the person becomes hopeless, when the patient becomes hopeless and helpless, they begin to spiral downward faster. That the attitude and mentality of the patient, the bedside manner, the environment of the doctor, of the hospital, of the system, the advocacy of having somebody there with you, it all has an impact. So beautiful, I never saw this before. So mikan shenite nushus but only lerapos. You're gonna be some miserable doctor, you're gonna have no bedside manner, you're not gonna give the patient the time that they deserve, you're gonna bring your negativity to their bedside, you're not entitled, you don't have license for that. Your license doesn't allow you to do that. Your attitude, your energy of a doctor, the energy of the doctor has to be only larapos, only to heal, and nothing else, nothing short of that. Perachav Beis, Pasach Aleph. We are up against the clock. Chav Beis, Chav Aleph, page 430. Moved over. Sensitivity to the helpless and the abandoned. Every widow and orphan, you should not aggrieve. And Rashi tells us, that's true for everybody. You're not... We're not entitled to be mean and callous, unkind to everyone, except, oh, the widow and orphan, they're the exception. They have to be nice to them. Everybody else you could be mean and a jerk to. But the Torah is telling us in the present tense, you know why? You have to be nice to everybody, but you have to be particularly nice to those who are vulnerable and those who are fragile. Rashi uses the language, those who are running on fumes those who have so little energy, those who are so emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically exhausted. And says that the fair Shmuel from here, you see here how kind and sensitive you have to be, supportive of those who are There's the normal everyday things of life. I have this ache, I have this pain, just growing older. I have this frustration, I have this disappointment. Those are the ordinary, regular parts of life. But then you have the people who are the kol almana viasom. What's an almana? The Chizkuni writes, almana is almana, missing a portion. Almana is almana, missing a portion. So it doesn't just mean the widow who's missing. Everyone else comes to a Shabbos meal with their spouse. Everyone shows up at the shul program, the shul dinner with a spouse. Everybody else has, knows who they're going to sit with, what the vacation is going to be, who they're going to go home and speak to Lashon Hara that they're not supposed to share with about everything that happened that night. The almanas almana, they're missing something. They're missing something. Which Rebbe was it? An incredible Rebbe, who went to his chassid's merchasna uh, and went to the wedding, and three in the morning says to the Gabbai, we have to go to his house. Gabbai thinks, what in the world, why? Takes him to his house, the Rebbe goes in for a few minutes, comes out, brings him on. The Gabbai can't help it. Which Rebbe was it? Vision it's Rebbe? He couldn't help it. He says, Rebbe, it's three in the morning. We had to go to his house. You went to the, you went to the wedding already. You have to go to his house now? And the Rebbe said to him, listen to this lesson. The Rebbe said to him, he said, this chassid lost his wife. He said, do you know, everyone goes home when they make a simcha and they go talk to their spouse. What'd you think of the band? What'd you think of the caterer? Who'd you see? Do you see who showed up? Can you believe you saw the place guards who said they're coming, we paid for them and they never showed up? Wasn't the dancing amazing? And the photographer, how'd I look in the gown? How'd this work out? How'd this look out? He came home from this wedding and he has no one to talk to. He has no one to share this with. So I went in order to have that conversation. What'd you think? What'd you see? Wasn't this amazing? When they sang that song, the place lit up. It was on fire. You see the sensitivity for an almana, the almana, someone who's missing a portion, who's missing a portion, that connection. And that's what the Torah is cautioning us and, walk and, work and telling us that a person has to bring that attitude, that sensitivity. So when you're kind and nice to somebody who generally is well and is just going through their everyday life, that's nice. But when you find the vulnerable, the fragile, the people who are teshushe koach, they're running on fumes, they're barely holding on, single moms, single dads, divorced, widows, widowers, orphans, people struggling to put food on their table, or how about this? Every single person in Israel right now who doesn't have the serenity, the peace of mind, who don't have their family intact and at home, maybe someone's off fighting on the front line, a spouse, a child, a sibling, who just work is different, life is different, school is different, safety and security are different. There's nobody who's not touched. 
And I think part of our responsibility of diaspora Jewry is to treat our brothers and sisters in Eretz Israel not with pity and sympathy, with honor and affection, but as the Almana, they're missing something. And again, not necessarily the place or time, but I'll tell you, the people I saw post online, their yeshiva week, their vacations, where they went, how amazing, what, just with callousness to who's watching and who sees and what they're going through. We just have to do everything we do, everything we do, lo sa'onun, to be callous and unkind and cruel, to be, to be tone deaf to, to how we appear, what we say, what we complain about, how we're speaking, when we check in, do we love, so it's a word of caution to all of us right now and how we're seeing that entire country of our brothers and sisters over there and what they're going through, we should be very careful, careful with. Okay, one... Uh, time for one more. Let's go to the end of the parsha. We're skipping Nasa and Ishma. How could a Jew skip Nasa and Ishma? Every single week I prepare and I think I'm going to run out of things to say. It's going to be humiliating and embarrassing. The hour won't be up. I'll make up some excuse why it had to be less than an hour today. Every week, I promise you, every week that's what goes through my mind. And then every week we go through half of the list of the things that I wanted to share. Okay. I'm a work in progress. Ask my parents. I'm a work in progress. I'm trying. I'm trying. Let's go to the end of the parasha. We're skipping Nasa and Ishma. Oh, I had a Megid Yosef. I had a Rav Kook. I had a Rav Echalap. I had such good stuff. But you'll have to come back next year, Parshas Mishpatim. Perach of Dalad, but we'll be in Yerushalayim and Mitzvah Shem, learning it together. Perach of Dalad, Pasuk Yed Aleph, chapter 24, Pasuk Yed Aleph. Here the Torah is telling us the story of Harsinai. Right? Yisro was Harsinai, Mishpatim Ve'ela. We went through all these detailed minutia laws. And now the Parsha ends with, again, the story of, and is it chronological? Is it in order, out of order? all a big, complicated discussion. But here we have Moshe going up on the mountain, the people saying Nasa v'nishma, putting Nasa before nishma, the prophecy of the mountain. And then we have the Torah telling us, Vayiru eis elokei Yisrael, that what happens, Moshe, Aaron, Nadav, and Aviyah, the 70 elders of the Jewish people, ascended. They saw Hashem, under his feet was the likeness of a saphir brickwork, and it was like the essence of the heaven in purity. And ve'latzilei b'nei Yisrael, the great men of the children of Israel, lo shalach yado, Hashem did not straight out, stretch out his hand, vayachazuas ha'elokim, these great men, who are these great men? Ar, Moshe, Aaron, Nadav, and Aviu, the Zikne Yisrael, these great men, vayachazu, they took in, they perceived, they saw, they experienced Elohim, God, and what did they do? Let's eat. Vayochlu, vayishtu. They ate, and they drank. Let's fress, let's ask, let's eat. Let's eat. Our parsha concludes with this wondrous event involving Hashem entering into this covenant and following this bris, this ceremony, Moshe's command to take Aaron, Nadav, and Avi, and the Zikni Yisrael, and they have an amazing vision, Vayachzu. Wow. Felt the presence of the divine. Tapped into their Tzelem Elohim, their Chelek Elokim, Yomal Mamish. And what do they do? They eat and they drink. That's how you feel? Should be the opposite. One of my daughters knows I love to tell this story. When she was in high school, Baruch Hashem, she was and is and will always be amazing. But you know, when your kid's in high school, there's not sar gidobanim, there's gidobanim. You're unsure. But one year after Ni'ilah, we have a Ni'ilah here. If you've never experienced our Ni'ilah, our Ni'ilah, psh. We were walking home from shul after Ni'ilah and she said to me, she said, Abba, that Ni'ilah was so unbelievable. I feel like I don't even need to eat. I could fast another day. I just wanted it to keep going. I wanted to keep singing. I keep wanting to go. It was unbelievable. That's the moment. She, said, she knows I say. I knew everything was going to be just fine. It always was. It always is. It always will be. But the measure, so, so the feeling that you should have, you make contact with the divine. You should say, food? Who needs food? I never need to eat again. I have spiritual ozempic. I never need to eat again. What do I need it for? Instead, what do they do? They see Hashem. Ooh, I'm hungry. All of a sudden, I got an appetite. It's the opposite of the way it should be. Says the Medjushama, The text teaches they uncovered their heads, they became presumptuous, and they fed their eyes on the Shekhinah. Unklos disagrees. He teaches the Pasuk that it's only metaphorical. Look at Unklos. He says, They envisioned Hashem, and they ate and drank, means just like food nourishes the body, they drank in the image of Hashem. Achlu vishasu doesn't mean they ate and drank. It means drink it in. Take in that ni'ilah. Eat up that ni'ilah. 
Eat up this moment. We even use that in the vernacular. Eat up this moment. Drink in this image. Not that they ate and they drank literally, says Unklus. It's a metaphor. It means that allegorically. Unlike the Medrash, which is critical, that Achlu Vashasu was a mistake. They should have held on to that spiritual eye. Don't go fress. And unlike Unklus, the Ramban understands the Pasuk at face value. And he sees a religious value to what happened here. They ate and drank, says the Ramban, because they experienced Kabbalah Satora. And when you experience Kabbalah Satora, you have to capture it. You have to manifest it. You have to express it. You have to experience it by rejoicing. The Tolzank of Yosef, a student of the Baal Shem, says, and this is the Hasidish approach, you'll understand, that sometimes a person has to bribe the body so it won't disturb the spirit. Sometimes you have to bribe and distract the goof so that the neshama can fly, for the neshama to thrive. So they ate and drank to satisfy and satiate the body so that they wouldn't get, you know what we call it today? They wouldn't get hangry. You know what hangry is? You know those people? Maybe you're one of those people. You ever, somebody's really agitated and they're on edge and they're difficult and you realize, are you, are you hungry? Do you need to eat something? Hangry. So says the, the Baal Shem, in that moment, they wanted to hold on to that spiritual high. So they bribed the body, eat something, drink something, don't get hangry because we want to stay where we are. But there's one more insight I'll end with, I'll share with you today. And it comes both from Rav Salvechik, Zatzal and his Chumash, and Yibad Lachayim Tov Ma'aruchim from the Gerer Rosh Hashiva from Mishal Altar. They both say the same idea. Moshe Aaron, the elders, had a moment of tremendous revelation, and they ate and drank, not metaphorically or allegorically, not in error, and not as a concession to an appetite or to avoid getting hangry. You know why they ate and drank in that moment? For a very deep reason, a very profound reason, a very lofty reason, a very high reason. The Baal notes that the word Vayechazu, they saw or gazed at Hashem, appears elsewhere. In Eicha, Yirmiyahu Anavi warns, Nevi'ayechazu lachshav v'safel, your prophets envision for you vanity and foolishness. They envision for you oracles of vanity and deception. The same word, Vayachazu, is used, they envisioned. Why that same word here, Vayachazu? And there they envisioned a very different vision. Sometimes a person feels inspired and spiritually awakened and aroused and uplifted. Something significant has happened. And how can you tell if it's a moment it's real, it's authentic, it's genuine. How can you tell if what experience was really a Kurdish Baruch This was a really holy high moment. Or maybe it was short-lived. Maybe it was fleeting. Maybe it was a feel-good moment, but it wasn't going to last. Maybe it was The answer is, you know how you know? Was it genuine and authentic? Or was it counterfeit and fleeting? You know how you know? When it's over, are you changed? Are you different? You go back to being the person that you were. They experienced the presence of Hashem and ate and drank to see if the eating and drinking would be different. Would it be a different eating and drinking? Would they feel Hashem in the bracha, in the food, in the experience? It's easy to be on a high after a ne'ilah, after a tish, after a fabrengen, after a harsinai. But does it carry over into the midos, into the kavana and davening, into learning, into being a better person? If it doesn't come with a change, then it wasn't real and it wasn't lasting, and it wasn't something which is true. And I close with this because I think this is also something that should be on our minds right now. We're still in a tekufa, this Eisar Yaakov. There's something big, there's something real that's happening in the world. And many of us, you see it in Eretz Yisrael, the spiritual awakening, the spiritual arousal. I posted a video when I was in Israel last week. I was in a mall and there was a worker at a restaurant and he was covered in tattoos and piercings, like an Evid Ivry many times over, no yarmulke, and sits his f- out flying. My wife's the first one noticed. I had a little chutzpah, went over. Basically, achi, what's pshat? I love your tzitzis. I don't care that you're not wearing a yarmulke. I love that you're wearing tzitzis. What's the story? Then I put it on video. I said, this is so great. I have to tell the world. He said he's always wanted to wear tzitzis. Tzitzis is a mitzvah. It speaks to him. But he felt ridiculous. He doesn't wear kippah. So what is it? A guy who doesn't wear kippah is going to wear tzitzis? He said, kippah is a minhag. Tzitzis is a mitzvah. Kippah didn't speak to him. He didn't feel he wanted to. wasn't on the level too. So he didn't wear the tzitzis because he didn't wear a kippah. October 7th, he lost several friends in the Nova Festival. 
And he decided to himself, I no longer care what other people think. I want to do the mitzvah, I want to connect to Hashem, I want to wear these strings, this reminder, I'm putting on tzitzis. And he hasn't missed a day since October 7th. So he's wearing the tzitzis because he doesn't care. And then he turns on the camera and he says, don't care what other people think. Also when it comes to mitzvahs, don't worry how you look, what they'll think, but you do this, but you don't do that. You have a mitzvah, you're inspired to do it, jump on it and do it. Something transformed you, impacted you, a tragedy you went through, a loss you experienced, jump on it and do it. The biggest thing is he gave me a hug and the people we were with and he said that he got funny looks from people. The manager of his restaurant told him, tuck in your tzitzis, you look ridiculous. And he was so appreciative that a fellow Jew with a yarmulke and tzitzis came over and just said, I love you. Your brother, I love that you're wearing tzitzis. And he said, well, that's what we need more of, the Avas Yisrael, without judgment. See what people are wearing. Don't see what's missing. See what they have. Don't see what you don't have in common. See what you have in common. That's how we're going to get to Geula. But he is not the exception. There's a spiritual awakening happening all over Israel. There's no secular Israeli right now. And for us too, there should be an awakening, a spiritual arousal. There should be a transformation, a change. And the question of whether this period of time that hopefully ends today, Mashiach should come, should end today with a sweeping victory, everyone should be home. Hopefully it ends today. We look, we'll look back at it to know whether this was real and genuine and authentic or counterfeit and fleeting. Will it leave a permanent change? Will we change? Will we sit to eat and drink in a different way than we did before? Or are we the same us? Our eating and our drinking, our brachas and our benching, our midos and our avas Yisrael, are we the same? Amir Tzashem, we should be changed and we should be able to experience the Geula Shlema. Please stay for Tehillim.